Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, I would like to say welcome back from your international travels. It was in the archive, Jennifer. Well, I'm mentioning the fact that you were gone in order to excuse the fact that the excellent content operation known as Have You Heard has been a little bit slow this summer. Mm, it's Francisco's fault, I think. I don't think it's Francisco's fault. Well, anyway, we are back together. We're actually recording this in the same place, which has become some, somewhat unusual. That's true. Yeah, it's, it's good to be back in the studio. The memories are thick here. Well, Jack, while you have been off at a location that I was not even allowed to know, lest I bother you <laughs> while you were on your quote-unquote research trip, mm -hmm. I have been interviewing something like a thousand people in North Carolina. <laughs> I will just mention, Jennifer, that uh, while I was on my research trip, you were getting chapters regularly, not only delivered to you, but like often within hours of you sending me your latest edited versions. So our listeners should know that. Yes. And Jack's mentioning this because the real reason why our content delivery operation has been a little delayed this summer is because Jack and I have been working on a book and it is nearing completion. The title of the book is The Education Wars, A Citizen's Defense Manual or something like that. Gosh, I don't I don't know. I, so I thought it was surviving the education wars. I, the world word war is in there someplace. Well, the good news is that while a title remains a work in progress, the book itself is almost done. That's true. Yeah. We will no doubt be pestering you with lots of advertisements for it over the next year. And that means that we can focus once again on this outstanding podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to North Carolina today. We certainly are. And North Carolina has really been just on the front lines of what's a pretty unbelievable assault on public education. And I think this is going to be very instructive for people to hear because unlike a lot of places where all the heat and light is around the culture war itself, in North Carolina, you're really beginning to see the outlines of what the future looks like there. And it looks a lot like the past. Yeah, this is not going to be uh, a Rainbows and Unicorns episode if you haven't picked up on that yet. That's certainly the case, although I think people are going to be really surprised by how much inspiration there is in the stories we're about to hear. So what do you say, Jack? Should we go to North Carolina? <laughs> All right, let's go. Now to North Carolina, where if you are a believer in public education, things are looking pretty grim. In fact, just about every week seems to bring more terrible legislation aimed at undermining public education in the state. Renee Seckel is the founder of Save Our Schools North Carolina and the creator of the Advocacy Bites podcast. Definitely check it out. And a lot of what she does these days is track really bad bills, which is how she happened to find herself early one morning 
morning this summer trying to make sense of a sweeping bill that came out of nowhere. The bill drops, and I'm reading it and going, this is so much worse than anything I have ever seen before, ever. And I thought that the North Carolina General Assembly couldn't go lower. Not only did it start going after our public schools in novel ways, but it also was for the first time that I have seen a full frontal attack on our public libraries as well. And I started just going through, okay, who do I know? How can we get the word out? We need to know about this. And it wasn't just that the bill was bad, but that the whole process for approving it was rotten, a sign of North Carolina's increasingly anti-democratic tilt. Legislators will take a bill that has already passed one chamber, and they will strip it of all of its language. So this bill started out as a two-paragraph bill about kids getting searched at schools. And they take all of that language out, and they substitute something else in. Suddenly, there were 24 pages of legislation, and it was going to go in front of the House Education Committee that day. Included in that legislation was a Parents' Bill of Rights, mandatory outing of LGBTQ students to parents, strict new limits on sex education, and a provision that would have defined charter schools as non-public. This is a partial list, by the way. And unusually for North Carolina these days, it didn't go anywhere. For now. Justin Parmenter is an English teacher in Charlotte and an outspoken defender of the public schools in North Carolina. Here's how he describes what education politics in the state is like these days. Sometimes I get this visual of like one of those cheesy 70s kung fu movies where there's one good guy and there's a whole host of ninjas coming out of the woodwork from every direction and they've got him surrounded and he's fighting on one side and then just when he defeats that one, you know, there are two more behind him. And it's kind of how it feels to be, you know, a teacher and an advocate for public education in North Carolina because there are so many battles that we're fighting at the same time and all of them are critically important. You know, new challenges just keep cropping up one after the other, and it's just its just really exhausting. And he's not exaggerating. There are the big bills, like the push to make North Carolina's notoriously unregulated school voucher program open to every kid in the state, no matter how wealthy their parents are. But then there's the relentless tide of less noticed policies, targeting schools and the people who work in them. And here's the thing. As Justin explains, all of this legislation doesn't actually reflect public opinion in the state. One thing that it's important for people to understand is that a lot of the policies that we see coming down in North Carolina do not really reflect the will of most of the community. We have polling that shows very clearly that people believe that there needs to be more funding for public education, that people trust and respect teachers, you know, don't view them as some kind of, you know, Spider-Man villain the way that we're sometimes characterized in the media and by these legislators. That's not how most people want things to be in North Carolina. And so I just am continually reminding people of what this policy means, how people actually feel about it, and why it's probably going to pass anyway. Republicans here claimed a supermajority in the House of Representatives earlier this year after a Democratic rep switched her party affiliation. You probably heard about it. That means that while the Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, can veto some of these bad bills, the legislature can override him. Dr. James E. Ford is a former high school history teacher and the executive director of CREED, the Center for Racial Equity in Education. He says that for the past decade, North Carolina has essentially been on the receiving end of a right-wing takeover. 
North Carolina is actually the most moderate state in the union. We're pretty much evenly split around those who identify as liberal and conservative. So you would not know that based upon sort of the last few election cycles. But since about 2012, there's been a far right wing takeover and subsequent extreme gerrymandering. You've heard about some of the Supreme Court cases, I'm sure. Large urbans are under siege by, you know, counties and districts that identify more as red than they do as blue. So it's really misrepresented when you look at the politics for outsiders. You know, we're really entering into a stage of minority rule. What it means is that the policies that are being pushed are actually wildly unpopular. But most people actually want schools to be fully funded. <laughs> most people actually value students learning about different populations and learning about folks who maybe don't come from the same backgrounds as them. Let's just pause here for a quick review. Purple State tilts dramatically to the right on all kinds of issues, but public education seems to be a particular target. So where is all of this heading? Save Our Schools co-founder Renee Seckel has been advocating for public schools in North Carolina for several years now, but in her relatively brief tenure as a firebrand, she says that she's noticed a big shift in the way that the state's GOP power structure views public education and who should have access to it. I really perceived that most people supported public schools. And to the extent that the General Assembly and its leadership were doing something bad to public schools, that represented kind of nibbling around the edges. What we have seen in the last five years, though, is that is absolutely not the case. There is a vision for who deserves education, and we have seen it in ways large and small over the last several years. So, for example, there was a legislative committee that their stated purpose was to imagine you're building the public schools from the ground up, starting from scratch. And they brought in our lieutenant governor, who is currently running for governor, Mark Robinson. And his thesis was basically, and I'm paraphrasing, public schools would be great if only they didn't have all these kids in them. And that theme of making it easier to weed out the quote-unquote bad kids just keeps coming up. If a kid misbehaves, a teacher can call the school resource officer, a police officer, and remove them from the classroom. Boom, no questions asked. Students with disabilities removed to separate classrooms. Students with behavioral problems identified as students with disabilities and removed from classrooms or vice versa. But the whole idea is removing kids from classrooms. Then you get to, well, then where do they go? And I remember sitting in a committee meeting and Representative John Torbett, who's out in Gaston County and heads the education committee in the House, was talking about each school having a remedial behavioral classroom where all those kids could go. But he didn't seem to be talking about funding a teacher who was trained to deal with that. It was just like a holding pen. Teacher Justin Parmenter says he worries that the very concept of a public education system open to all kids is vulnerable at a time when the ruling party sees its mission as divide, conquer, and punish. As a public school educator, I'm, I'm in this work for everyone's kids. I'm there to serve. I'm there to support every single child that walks through my door. And, and that's one of the things that I really love about public education. We don't judge. You know, we, we take the children as they're sent to us and we do our best to support them and work with them and offer them opportunities in hopes that they're going to have a bright future. I think that's a different worldview than a lot of these people who are creating policy right now. It's, you know, we're here to serve people who are aligned with us in this way, this way, and this way. And if you're not, then, you know, we're going to demonize you and vilify you and try to be sure that you don't get your piece of the pie. 
A little context, North Carolina has unusually strong language in its state constitution, protecting public education as a right. We'll be hearing more on the history of that in just a bit. The constitution doesn't just say that people have a right to education and that the state has a duty to guard and protect that right, but that North Carolina's free public schools will provide equal opportunities to all students. James Ford says that it's that right to public education that's under such threat in North Carolina now. You go to countries where education is not a public good, right? So it's not considered a right to be consumed by the general public. Most of those countries have education systems that are mostly private, where you're expected to pay school fees to go to school. You may even have heard that phrase before, like, could you please donate so I can pay my school fees? And what, we, what we're seeing, whether we know it or not, is an apparatus where countries that are developing, that often are locked into a system of poverty, the population does not have a right to go to publicly funded schools. And if they are able to go to schools at all, it's if they're able to scrape up money to support their education. Imagine now that that's the end game for a lot of these folks who are pushing this legislation. They ultimately want to push us in a direction where it resembles what's happening in developing countries throughout the world. Now, that sounds crazy because you say, well, why would people want to deny people of a public good? Well, my honest take is that this is the one institution that endows people who go through it with the ability and the qualifications to make a livable wage, to mobilize themselves upward, and to bring themselves potentially out of the situations of poverty. James says that he often gets asked why North Carolina's political leaders would want to undermine the state's public schools. His answer is one of the more compelling explanations I've heard. But warning, it's also really bleak. You're somebody who only thinks about yourself and you are hyper-individualistic and you actually don't want to pay people a living wage. You want to find ways to suppress wages and to, to keep them low. You're going to want to disrupt that very system, right? And so effectively, I think that that's what's occurring. And so while people are kind of stupefied and wondering, like, why would they do such a thing? I need you to think about it from the perspective of somebody who is uber wealthy, uber rich, who is not going to have to kind of find workarounds to get their child through, you know, education. They have the means no matter what, right? They're already exploring choice. <laughs> it's about robbing effectively, robbing young families and, and communities of access to upward mobility through the destabilizing of traditional public schools. And you can just imagine what the future will look like when folks are no longer able to get a hold of education where they can think differently, develop skills, push and advance and evolve our society. I'm telling you, canaries in the coal mine, the rest of the stuff just goes downhill. And that's really the end game, I think, that we're looking at. Reggie Shuford heads up the North Carolina Justice Center, a progressive research and advocacy group. He says that we have to understand the GOP attacks on public education in North Carolina as part of the larger effort on the right to undermine democracy. It's just a part of the broader blowback and retrenchment that we're experiencing across the country. So the same people who are pushing for voter suppression are the same people who are doing what they can to limit access to education, not just access to it, but the content of it, like what we can learn, what students can learn, what teachers can teach. I think the fewer people who vote, the fewer people who are educated in physics or other things, the more easy it is to pass this regressive legislation. So when people are marginalized, kept away from the resources that they need, educationally, in terms of civic participation, in terms of self-identity, 
access to healthcare and other things that allow people to be their best selves. All of those things are really related to me. And I think, again, it stems to a particular conservative ideology that says this is the way the world should be. And it should be in accordance with my personal ideology. And because I'm in power, I'm going to do what I can to ensure that that ideology is what other folks need to subscribe to. Reggie grew up in North Carolina, but spent much of his adult life outside of his home state. He returned last year to find a state that seems to be regressing to the pre-civil rights era. It looks, unfortunately, like the North Carolina of the 50s and 40s. And I wasn't around then, but I'm only imagining. It certainly doesn't look like the North Carolina of the future. North Carolina has prided itself on being a different Southern state, more progressive than other Southern states. But I have to tell you now, it doesn't feel like that at all. And the reality is that with policy and legislation really pushing us backwards rather than propelling us forward. Which brings us to a major theme of this episode, history's long hand. Rodney Pierce is coming to us from Halifax County, North Carolina. That's in the eastern part of the state. He's been teaching middle school social studies for the past eight years. And I asked him to describe what his part of North Carolina is like. Rural, northeastern North Carolina uh, is definitely rural. A lot of fields, a lot of trees, a lot of country small towns where everybody knows everybody. This was the portion of your state where you had a lot of cotton and a lot of tobacco. During antebellum, this was the portion of your state where the highest enslaved populations existed. As a matter of fact, in 1860, Halifax's enslaved population was around 53%. And in 2020, our black population was 51%. So a lot of the people who are here today are the descendants of those people who were enslaved over 150 years ago. So it's like we never left. You have a lot of a lot of history here. An example of that history, the middle school that Rodney's kids attend and that he also went to is named for William R. Davey, the 10th governor of North Carolina, who served as one of the state's representatives to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, where he helped shape the three-fifths compromise for counting the slave population. Or take North Carolina's private school voucher program. Its official birthday is 10 years ago, but as Rodney explains, vouchers here date back much further. When I first heard about this program, as a historian, somebody who specializes in Black American history, I immediately thought this is nothing but post-Brown versus Board North Carolina all over again. These vouchers, this Opportunity Scholarship is similar to the Pearsall Plan or the Pupil Assignment Act that were passed in North Carolina following Brown versus Board, which would have let parents, namely white parents, take public money to pay for private tuition because namely white people didn't want their kids going to school with black children. And a lot of it, you know, had to do with black boys being around white girls. You know, they didn't they didn't want that at all. And then when you finally had things being desegregated in the late 60s, what happened? You had all of these white flight segregation academies popping up. And where were the majority of them popping up? Eastern North Carolina. Then there is North Carolina's long-standing failure to adequately fund public schools in places like Halifax. 
Rodney refers to himself and his children as Leandro kids, a reference to the 1994 lawsuit filed by five of the lowest-funded school districts in the state. Courts have now repeatedly sided with the plaintiffs, citing North Carolina's constitutional guarantee of public education as a right. Rodney says that it's essential that we understand where that language came from. That's something that comes out of the 1868 state constitution, a constitution that was written by black men and white men who formed a coalition to write this constitution. This is during Reconstruction. You know, it's the first time that black men, a lot of whom were formerly enslaved, had the opportunity to help craft the document that was going to govern the state that they and their families lived in. And one of the things that they understood was that education was going to be something that we could use as a vehicle to move our race forward. That's one of the reasons it was put in there. You know, and this was happening all around the country, especially in the South. Without black men who help, you don't have a system of free public schools. That's not a federal right. So, Jack, I want to bring you back in, and I want you to help us understand a period in North Carolina's relatively recent past, and this would be the era of Governor Jim Hunt, when North Carolina really emerged as a model of education reform for a certain kind of Democrat. I'll go ahead and say it, an Atari Democrat. (laughs) Yeah, Al Gore may be the most famous of the Atari Democrats, but... Hunt certainly made more of an impact on education. And I think that his legacy is really that he framed education as a way to turn around the state's economy. And in a very Bill Clinton-like turn, he suggested that investments in education would effectively pay for themselves. So Hunt, like Clinton, made the argument that any taxpayer dollars that were invested in education would come back to the state in the form of reduced incarceration rates and recidivism levels, reduced dependence on welfare, higher levels of income earning, and therefore higher levels of taxation, even while tax rates remained the same. And this, as you might imagine, was really appealing to the center left and the center right. Folks on the center right liked the idea that the budget would be balanced, that these new investments in education would be paid for. Those on the center left liked the idea that an investment was being made in what is effectively a social service, public education. The problem, of course, is that everything has a cost and that education doesn't actually pay for itself that way because the purpose of education is not to prepare people for jobs and keep them off the streets. That is one of the byproducts of education, but education is much more expansive than that. And the expansive nature of education means that it benefits us as a society. That's the return, but it does have a cost. And when you suggest that the cost of education is going to be paid for by these returns to the economy. And when that doesn't happen, that's going to raise questions either about the theory of change, which was not questioned, or about the effectiveness of the schools. And that's where we see Hunt's real legacy, right? If what you see is that the schools are not producing the promised results, then one of the logical things you can do in response is say, well, what's wrong with the schools? What's wrong with the teachers in those schools? What are they teaching? 
what's going on with the curriculum? And so Hunt's real policy legacy in education was a doubling down on curricular standards, on accountability measures aligned with those curricular standards, and particularly on trying to weed out unqualified teachers. And so the state adopted a raft of measures designed to try to identify teachers who didn't possess basic knowledge, content area expertise, et cetera. And this really becomes the playbook for the Democratic Party vis-a-vis teachers for the next several decades, all the way through Barack Obama, where the assumption is that there are a lot of bad teachers in classrooms, that many of them are bad actors, they're not trying very hard, or perhaps they are trying hard, but they just aren't very smart. And we're still living with that legacy now because we're seeing that more and more teachers are leaving the profession. There, about a year ago, was a lot of fighting over the data. Right? Are teachers leaving the profession or are they not? And there were some smug responses from people saying, no, look, attrition levels are about the same as usual. And now we're seeing that depending on the state, that's not true. A part of making teaching a less attractive profession is very much rooted in the idea that schools should be accomplishing a whole lot more than they are. And if they aren't, we can't blame young people for it. And therefore, we need to place the blame on the shoulders of teachers. Now, I think it's really important to ask the question whether schools are in fact failing to produce the kinds of outcomes that we want them to produce. Because expecting schools to turn around your economy is a really wild thing to expect them to do. What an indirect way to try to go about boosting your economy, right? Investing in the education of five-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds. If what you want to do is produce a stronger economy, then invest directly in workplace training for people. And we have seen some of that happen in a way that actually also has undermined the aim of public schooling. The idea that maybe what we should do is peel back all of the aspects of school that don't prepare people for work. But there is an alternative, and that's to allow school to be school in a way that does produce returns to all of us right? in making our places where we reside better places to live. And I think, ironically, if anything did work in terms of investing in public education to try to stimulate North Carolina's economy. And I think there is some evidence that it did work. I think it's a different theory of change. I think it's that investing in public education makes a place more attractive to live. It makes it more likely that people will want to reside there when they have other choices. And who are we talking about when we're talking about people who have options about where to live? We're talking about highly skilled workers. We're talking about people who have training and higher levels of education who tend to be far more mobile. And if what you want to do is attract them to potential employers, you have to offer them a place that is appealing to live, not just because their own children can get a decent education, but because they have high levels of confidence that other people around them also have a decent shot at a decent life. Now back to North Carolina, where our cast of thousands awaits. It will come as no surprise to you whatsoever that the school culture wars are blazing here with particular ferocity. Isabel Moore coordinates the Public School Strong Project for Heal Together North Carolina. 
We've seen over the last couple years an increase in just drama at school boards. So groups like Moms for Liberty and other groups are organized. They're attending. They're getting a lot of noise and a lot of attention for book bans. They're reading dramatic passages out that are winding on the news. At the same time, as we have an increase in draining funds away from the schools. So on the one hand, there's all this noise about distractions, manufactured problems that are not what we hear when we talk to everyday parents who want full funding. They want more books. They want more supportive grownups in the buildings. And then at the same time, there are efforts to actually take things further away from that. Some of the fiercest flare-ups have been in Johnston County, a fast-growing area southeast of Raleigh. It's the kind of once-rural, now-trending exurban and suburban place that political scientists sometimes refer to as countrypolitan. Rick Mercier ran for school board here, and he says that for many of the voters he talked to, the school culture wars were top of mind. When you run for school board, you need to spend a lot of time actually standing outside polling sites and talking to voters. It can be very interesting and uplifting, but it can also be pretty, pretty rough. Last time, there was just an awful lot of questions about CRT or maybe they, you know, folks would lead in with like, what do you think about how we teach history and should we teach kids about racism or should we favor one group over another? They might have sort of a more oblique way of trying to lead into it, but you know where a lot of people were going with it. There was a lot of that last election cycle. I would get questions about like, what do you think about these kids who think they're cats and want litter boxes in the classrooms? I was like, you know, that this is not happening in our district or probably anywhere. The sad thing was just not having as many opportunities to really engage people on important things like increasing teacher supplements or getting more nurses and counselors in the classrooms and strategies for boosting reading proficiency in the early grades, you know, stuff like that that actually matters. Johnston County is also where you can really see the effect of the state's growing push towards school privatization. We're growing fast and the charters and private schools have taken note. So we've had ALA, American Leadership Academy, come in and build a big school. We've seen National Heritage Academies have, have built a school. Thales Academy, which is private, they built a school and, and now are, are expanding it substantially. They're pulling in a lot of students I think it's having an effect in some parts of the county where we're starting to see it really have an effect on the demographic makeup on some of the schools around Smithfield and Selma. You're definitely seeing a little bit of white flight. And the the chains that have come in, I, I think they know that the lay of the land and, and their opportunity to appeal to families and, and pull in a, a large number of students. Rick, by the way, was not successful in his bid for school board. The candidates who won were part of a Moms for Liberty-type local slate. But he says that while conservative politics may have won the day for now, what he didn't hear from voters was any real support for dismantling their public schools. I don't think that there's, at the grassroots level, a lot of support for all this privatization, whether it's universal vouchers or you know, other ways of siphoning off money from public education. You know, I think it's it's important, you know, to point out how much in funding could be drawn away from our public schools and how important our public schools still are to our communities. I think establishing that sort of community connection 
people get that here in Johnston. Even if you're conservative, you have you might have a real connection, strong bond with the the high school because maybe you went there and your kids are going there and you you know the school system is the biggest employer in the county. Okay, so let's just pause here briefly to take stock of what we've learned so far. We now know that North Carolina, which has long built itself as a more forward-looking Southern state, is in the throes of a political backlash so intense that its entire public education system now hangs in the balance. And lest you think I'm exaggerating, here's Governor Roy Cooper basically making the same argument. It's time to declare a state of emergency for public education in North Carolina. There's no executive order like with a hurricane or the pandemic, but it's no less important. It's clear that the Republican legislature is aiming to choke the life out of public education. I'm declaring this state of emergency because you need to know what's happening. If you care about public schools in North Carolina, it's time to take immediate action and tell them to stop the damage that will set back our schools for a generation. Letha Muhammad is the co-executive director of the Education Justice Alliance. And like a lot of the people I talked to for this episode, Letha was happy that the governor acknowledged what's happening. She just wishes it hadn't taken him so long. It had been time a year, a year and a half ago for the governor to come out and say we were in a state of emergency for public education because, you know, I have the privilege of working with families on the ground who are directly impacted by decisions that are made at our state legislature, that are made at school board levels. And our families are in crises and not the manufactured crises that people would have you believe is happening that's really steeped in othering our families, not recognizing the need for all of us to be included in the curriculum in our public school system, but a real crisis, right, that strips funding from public schools, that doesn't allow young people to have access to counselors and nurses and ESL teachers and special education teachers. That's the crisis that has been at play for the families that I have the privilege of working with every day. Letha is part of a growing coalition that has emerged to defend public education here under the umbrella of HEAL NC, which stands for Honest Education, Action, and Leadership. Groups like the one Letha heads up are rallying around a central question. When are we going to talk about what students, teachers, and schools really need instead of all these phony made-up issues? And that means acknowledging that for a whole lot of kids in North Carolina, the promise of equal opportunity in the Constitution is just so many words. We recognize that public education is a public good that is something that our tax dollars is funding. And we also recognize that they haven't been perfect for our families and that they need to be transformed. So that's why our our tagline is clear protecting public education while transforming it at the same time and transforming it from the perspective of ensuring that the resources that need to be there are there for families on the ground having a real life experience in school. So that means support staff. Parents want to know that their children will go to school and have access to the resources that will help them maintain a quality education. 
what we try to do in our work with parents is help them connect the dots to what has been missing, where the problems are at for public schools, and trace it all the way back to decision makers at our General Assembly who are willfully siphoning public dollars from public schools in a way that furthers the harms. That goal of bringing together parents who love their local schools with parents who've long been pushing for them to be better also animates public schools strong. They're trying to get parents, students, teachers, and community members involved at school board meetings in all 100 of North Carolina's counties, and they're well on their way. Organizer Isabel Moore says that the group's fast growth reflects the deepening concern about the future of public education, something Public Schools Strong members are vocal about. If things continue on the track that they are now, where do you think we'll be in five years in North Carolina? Where do you think we'll be in 10 years and 20 years? And folks say, we may not have public schools. In my rural county, there are no private or charter schools that I could send my child to. What, you know, what are we going to do if our public schools are dismantled? People say, you know, black and brown students and working class students are going to have the most bare bones education without the resources they need, while middle class families who can figure it out do kind of an equivalent of a white flight to charter schools and private schools and leave these kind of gutted public schools behind. And people are really scared when they think about that future. The next question, what are you going to do to keep this bleak future from becoming reality? Do I want to be one of the parents who stands on the sidelines and watches the train zoom down the track towards this kind of dystopian future that we think we could be headed towards if things get much worse? Or am I as a parent going to be actively engaged in protecting the schools that I love, improving them, transforming them, coming together with other parents and really standing for, you know, this is the kind of public education we want. This is the kind of state we want. This is the kind of future we want. I think we really are at a crossroads. And I think more and more parents across communities are seeing that and sort of realizing this is a decision point for a lot of us about what we're going to fight for who we're going to fight alongside, how we're going to come together and really have each other's back. Now, I know that I've used the word bleak several times in this episode. I think I threw in a grim once for good measure. But what really struck me about so many of my conversations was how hopeful people are. That while they may not be able to stem the tide of bad legislation being passed right now, history is on their side. Here's Letha again. I'm an eternal optimist. I believe that we will win. There's more of us than anybody else. And when we are informed, when we create space for us to come together and to learn, we grow and we're powerful. We come to this space optimistic about the ability for us to organize our folks together against this threat. History shows that when people come together and unite and push back, things change. And so I know we will win. Earlier, we met Reggie Shuford, who came back to his home state to lead the North Carolina Justice Center. He wanted us to understand that what's happening here is part of the broader backlash against multiracial democracy. And that actually gives him some hope. This backlash won't last forever. This retrenchment won't last forever. Brighter days are on the horizon. But as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I don't think it bends by itself. 
I think it takes people of goodwill to push it. And that push, that is the work that we have to be doing in the moment. Because if we don't, we can assure ourselves that the backlash will last longer and the work that will need to be undone will be even more difficult to undo. So we got to stay in the fight because people are relying on us and our day will come. Like that I can be sure of. That I can be sure of. Finally, I want to give the last word to my friend and fellow podcaster, Renee Seckel, who has a special message to listeners in North Carolina. The most important thing that I want people to understand is that now is the time to get involved. There is no longer the luxury of sitting on the sidelines and assuming that somebody's going to stop this. Our schools are under attack from almost every direction, and we cannot take for granted anymore the idea that we will always have public schools. And I'm specifically talking to the folks like me who are in Wake County or Mecklenburg County whose children enjoy excellent public education, who cannot even imagine a world without public schools, and who have the luxury of complaining about, well, we don't really like the principal, when across the state kids are worried about, well, we don't really have classrooms. So the time is now. Nobody else is coming to save us. A huge thanks to all of the people who talked to me for this episode, Justin Parmenter, Dr. James Ford, Rodney Pierce, Isabel Moore, Letha Muhammad, Reggie Shuford, Rick Mercier, and Renee Seckel. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about what North Carolina has taught us about the state of the public education landscape, and we'll be revealing the subject of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint. Earlier this summer, we did an episode with historian Johan Neem, who made the case that there is no way to win the education culture wars. We We'll be talking about your very strong reactions to that episode in the weeds. If you want to come along, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to become a supporter. We mentioned at the beginning of the show that we have been at work on a new book that is nearly complete. And I think in many ways, this episode gets at the heart of what we're trying to explain in the new book, that that on the one hand, the culture of war stuff is real and it's damaging. But on the other hand, it's really being used to stoke a very regressive agenda that's also deeply unpopular. And that what you're hearing in this episode is that, you know, yes, the stuff that's coming out of the North Carolina legislature is, you know, is, is really terrible. And it's clearly aimed at moving North Carolina backward. And yet it has also presented to people on the ground with a really kind of inspiring organizing agenda that you have people coming together across all kinds of lines of difference to say, you know, we know actually we insist on public education and here's what it's going to look like. And so in some ways, even though I would say that this counts as one of our more depressing episodes. <laughs> There's also a lot in here that people should be inspired by. Yeah, in a sense, this moment is giving public education advocates a do-over, 
not just for the past several decades of center-left framing of education as uh, essentially being about human capital development and being kind of anti-teacher and protesting. It in many ways, is a do-over for all of American educational history, right? One of the things that opponents of public education like to point out is that there are these nasty moments in our history where public education was not for everyone, right? Where it was explicitly framed as being for only Protestant children or only white children or only boys or we can go on throughout history. And the, the story of American educational history is, I think, if we're going to distill it down to something very simple, this very Eric Foner-like thesis about expanding access and expanding freedoms for people, expanding rights and expanding opportunities. In many ways, this moment in the fight for the future of public education allows us to make the case that actually has evolved over time, but that was not the original purpose of public education, right? What has evolved over time is that we believe that public education is a right in this country, that everybody deserves equal access to it, that it is something that is essential for leading a good life, and that it's something that we can all accomplish together, which of course requires us to all be investing in it together, right, to make it truly public. I think that kind of argument is really powerful and it isn't one that has been with us for the past 200 years. Again, it's one that has evolved over time as it has become more inclusive, as our aims for education have become broader and more ambitious, and as our recognition of the need to invest in it adequately has really followed those other two things. Well, Jack, I have to say that you have left me feeling more inspired about the world, but also given me just the push I need in order to finish that last chapter plus. It shouldn't be a chapter plus, Jennifer. <laughs> it should be a few pages at this point. So, but I'm afraid that I have to drag us back to contested territory because that's where we're going to be spending our in the weeds segment for the episode. I really thought you were about to go dun dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> so as our regular listeners know, we rely on your support to keep the podcast going, to pay our excellent producer, Hey Francisco, and we do that through Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast, you'll see a list of all of the extras you can get just by throwing a few dollars our way each month. And those are things like a reading list and and the privilege of getting to accompany us into an area that we call the weeds. And that's a slightly less polished version of what we do on the it's pod. It's mostly swearing. It's mostly swearing, especially from Jack, because <laughs> I, I I don't swear. And this in this segment of In the Weeds, we're going to be revisiting an episode that we did earlier this summer. Many of you heard it, and many of you had very strong reactions to it. We interviewed education historian Johan Neem, and he made the case that folks like us are doing the culture war all wrong. So if you would like to revisit that episode and hear about some of the strong feedback we got from folks and whether that has caused us to rethink some of our opinions on Johan's argument, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. 
I am going to slightly change the pitch that I usually make here because I think reflecting on the the feedback that we got on that episode from people, what I'm feeling like is that we have become pretty successful at creating a community of listeners who are really interested in ideas and really interested in the future of public education. And I think that they are at the vanguard right now. And so I'm always making my pitch about how they should tell people that they listen to Have You Heard or share the latest episode with folks or tweet about it. I think that we're at a moment right now with this show where we have reached sort of the large number of early adopters and we're ready to take it to a larger audience. And so my plea, I think, is going to begin to change over the next year. And it's going to be like really, truly, teachers, listen to this with your colleagues and like and send it to the people who you know you want to talk to about this stuff. And, and parents and caregivers, like... Put it on your your Facebook page for your school and say this is something we should be talking about because I know that one of my goals for this show as we approach the next election is to really begin talking more in ways that will make the show accessible for folks who haven't been along with us for the first however many episodes we've done, 160, I don't know. We're, we're up close to 200 at this point, right? Like to start creating some entry points for people so that they don't feel like they're entering into the middle of a very long conversation. Um, so A very long conversation with an education historian. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It goes, it goes way back. Uh, so, so truly, uh, begin sharing the show and we're going to continue making episodes that we think are good, but also with a real focus on making them easily accessible for people who haven't been listening. Well, Jack, now I'm looking forward to the year ahead even more than I already was. And it sounds like you're going to be very busy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, will, uh, I will be doing what I usually do, Jennifer. <laughs> no comment. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 